This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi listeners, James here. Just a heads up, there's some strong language in this episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the door closed or is that alright? Yeah, 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 I'll just... A chicken might wander in from the back. <laughs> it's happened before. We're in South Auckland. But in many ways, this place also has a deep feel of Donga. We had a freaking chicken walk in while we were having our meeting one time to cover. Oh, we had a cover circle down there. Yeah, yeah. Freaking chicken runs in there. And I was like, oh, shh, a bit embarrassing. You know, there'd be one uncle going, oh, it's the ancestors. Yeah, it's, it's the sign, guys. Yeah, yeah. It's always a sign. Yeah. Until they shit in the cover box. <laughs> we're here to meet a man who navigates two worlds. My name is Pakilao Aotearoa. Pakilao is my uh, matapule. It's a Tulafale title in the village of Waitni. Um, my Christian name is Manaselua. Um, I have the honour of also being on a number of different boards and community groups, of which one of them is the Pacific Advisory Group for New Zealand Rugby Union, which sits under the programme that uh, Savia Tamai Ronnie Clark managers at the New Zealand Rugby Union. So I also do work in the rugby league space with Mate Matong. So when you're sitting on an advisory board yep. in New Zealand to yep. Pacific Rugby and you're Tong. Yes. And you see the All Blacks yep. beat Donga yep. by a hundred points. Yes. It hurts. It hurts, but it's also uh, a part of the growth of the game uh, in a way that benefits one side of the game, which is the established unions. And so why it hurts is that we in Tonga know the potential of our players should the best players play for Tonga. Mm. Just what hap- like what happened with MMT. You know, mm. we all saw that. Now, just in case you're not aware of Mate Matonga, MMT, that's the Tongan rugby league team who have been transformed over the last few years by selecting from a wider pool of players. We all know about Thor Moore's glorious run to the final of the Rugby League World Cup in late 2022. But in fairness, Donga started it all. In the crowd, on the field, and no doubt back up home in Donga. Remarkable, gutsy effort. This is Mate Matonga beating Australia in 2019. The game is over and Tonga are victorious. Incredible, wonderful. Remarkable. Everyone wrote MMT off until they beat uh, Great Britain and uh, Australia Mm. not too long ago. So if you give our players the chance, when I say our, I Mm. mean the Pacific countries, a chance to to have their best players, they will rival the best teams in the world in either code. What has stood in the way of that in the past? 
Oh, if I'm honest, I think it's just uh, self-interest in terms of the big unions. Um, look, New Zealand rugby is just like any other big body in England or France, the home unions. They have their own interests. In fact, that's the right thing to do. They're the New Zealand rugby union, so mm. they have to protect their own interests. However, they have to remember also they draw from the same pool that our countries draw from. And, you know, and we've contributed to the growth of the game. Uh, the game would not look anything like it does now without the Polynesian players, and that's a fact. You take away Māori and you take away the Pacific players and you have a very boring game. And so I think there is a, a value to that. That idea of value is crucial, but also vague. Everyone agrees the Pacific contribution is valuable, but can you put a dollar figure on that? And then, can you get someone to pay you? For the players, who have to make choices about which team they'll represent, how do they make that choice? That's a reality of the game, it's a professional era, so they have to conform to pay the bills. But on the other side, if you ask a Samoan or a Tongan, mm. this is all metaphorically, if mm. I put a gun to their head and I say, look, I'm going to kill you, but you have to choose, will you die for Manusa Moa or for the All Blacks? Mm. They will die for their home country. This is a very Tongan metaphor, I think you're putting Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, I'm, but I'll tell you, it's the truth. If, if I put a gun to their head, <laughs> who would you play for? Who would you die for? You know, bad analogy, but that's no. what it boils down to. They will die for their home country, I bet you. Matatong. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's what it is, but that doesn't pay the bills. Mm. You know what I mean? It's very simple. In the last episode, we heard from Fina Anisi, the young centre who plays for Tonga, and Moana Pasifika about how complicated the situation was for the Tongan team who played the All Blacks in 2021. Yeah, it was, it was pretty rough. We stayed at a local high school in Hamilton. We didn't get paid <laughs> till like the last week of camp. So most of us had nine to five jobs. So we had to sacrifice like three weeks of unpaid work which was pretty tough on all the boys and myself as well. So we kind of had to push to get paid from the government and from the Tongan Rugby Union. But our leaders, uh, Nasi Manu, and they really kind of pushed for that, for those payments to, to be made, um, which we did eventually get three weeks later, I guess. <laughs> it was really tough, especially for those with the young families. It was pretty sad to see. I'm John Daniel. In this episode, we're going to focus on Tonga and the players who represent it. And I'm James Nokise. We're going to be talking about money, mana and choices. What Fine was saying about the difficulties of getting paid, unfortunately, that isn't new. This is Fair Game, Pacific Rugby against the world. It's a story about rugby. Wide to Lamu, he's got the bounce, he's handed up his opposite. But it's also a story about money and power. Oh, it's, it's not a fair game now because certainly the island nations haven't uh, got enough money. Sometimes they have to choose between representing their, their country or um, not being paid. History and race. I can remember being told to piss off back to the islands, you coconut. Is it a fair game? I remember a test 
were about to play Romania and I, and I stayed up till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning trying to hear back from Tonga to confirm the players were getting paid. So when they wake up on the test match day, I could say, money's in, boys. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you know. We've come to Dunedin to meet the head of the Pacific Rugby Players Association. My name is Hale Tāpore, Tipo, originally from Tonga. I come here till I was about 18, so I think there's a benefit of what I'm doing because I can relate back to Tonga, Fiji and Samoa. How I grew up, I saw rugby there, the people, the culture, and it feels like without trying to talk myself up, I've got both, you know, I've done my time in Tonga where I fully understand the view from the... And, and there's something that I wanted to mention too. I understand the struggle that the home unions go through every time something comes out. And then now, looking back, if it's the honest conversations from the unions, I back them because I understand the struggle. Hale came to New Zealand in a Dongan schoolboy side, like a surprisingly large number of All Blacks. Then he got picked up by Wesley College, John Olomu's old school. We had under 14, 15, 16 from Tonga Touran here every year and then get picked up. as like an open market here. The Samson Taukeaho, the Malakai Fekitoa, Saula Ma'o of the Highlanders. Um, all these players come through our we tour like that. And, and it opens up. Man, like you said, you can't... I've got no solutions though because you back them to go and chase the highest where they can get to the rugby but it's time that it's a loss to Tonga um, same as the Japanese market I just seen uh, a couple of players leaving Tonga yesterday the 15 14 year old going to Japan and then we're still trying to work out a system where it's benefiting for Tonga too but you can't stop them when they're going to earn and then go build villages and families and churches in Tonga in five years' time. He got to know Dunedin playing in the back row for the Highlanders and went on to play for teams in the UK and Japan. And because of that experience, Hale started getting put in positions of authority with the Tongan national side, the Ikale Tahi. And they had some interesting results. You, do, you don't play to be in a leadership group, but if you get put in there and then you, you got a bit of... You know, the players will come to you fucking every second of the whole week and, and fuck, bro, where's our gears? Where's our, the, yeah, can you talk to... You know, the frustration builds up on you as, as the go-to guy and the team, and you're like, fuck, radio. Fucking, we're striking, boys. <laughs> that kind of revolutionary mindset was shared by other members of the team. In 2007, Donga was preparing for the Rugby World Cup and funds were scarce. We're going through that tournament, we're just getting by because we're going to the World Cup. Nobody cared about us leaving Tonga with good preparation there. But as the goes on, you get the same things from players. Well, you know, we're getting paid. You see, we're going to get paid last week. And then you go to the management and go through the same shit. So talk turns to fundraising. Probably not something the All Blacks are thinking about at this point in their preparations. We were in. Bournemouth or somewhere. Shit, we're gonna uh, a funding. Gig, we're gonna turn up at a nightclub and then they'll give us some money. Fuck you, well, boys, get changed. We're all into this nightclub <laughs> fundraising. Anything that we could hustle. But these hustles are just small cash grabs, and like any good hustlers, they're looking for a bigger score. 
an epi comes out with the idea, he comes into me, Nili, a couple of other boys. That's Nili Latu, the inspirational Dongan captain in 2007, and Epi Taone. Epi's a, a hustler fellow, I've got a lot of time with Epi, interesting character. Who would go on to be president of the Dongan Union. So we've got this petty power deal, what do you think? As soon as he mentioned money, died here, I was like, fuck, we're in, man. An Irish betting agency had approached Epi Taone in the run-up to the Tongan game against England and said they paid them a fee somewhere in the region of £50,000 plus bonuses if the team would dye their hair green and wear Paddy Power underwear. And I'm like, fuck, get undies, Walgren, undies, dye our hair, everything. Meanwhile, World Rugby hears about this. There are press reports out about it. I remember writing one for the French sports paper, Le Keep, and they have kittens. Rugby World Cup sponsorship gets run by World Rugby. Guerrilla marketing is not welcome because that threatens the integrity of the product being sold to other advertisers. So word comes down that they won't be allowed to play if they go through with the stunt. And the Dongan boys, who have dyed their hair green, quite hard in the first place when you have black hair, have to dye it back again. Yeah, the betting agency gets shut down, but by this point have made an enormous impact in terms of viral marketing. And they do pay up. I'm not sure if it's the full amount. This doesn't seem to be a deal where there's a, a lot of paperwork. But the Tongan team sees some money, even if Harley says, thinking back on it, there's an uncomfortable edge around the source of that money. That looks so dodgy from the start, you know, getting that, and it's a betting company in Irish or whatever, but at that time, just us just narrow focusing how much we're getting because we just wanted the boys to get paid. And then, then, like you said, then you even think about, fuck, this is exploitation at its best. We just didn't see it. Because it's a really fun story, and it's a real ex- extraordinary story, but then you, from an economic point of view, from a financial point of view, a personal point of view, it's also kind of extraordinary that in the middle of the World Cup, of the marquee tournament of the sport, mm. a team has to go to such an extreme example to get money for its players. Like, yeah. it, you know, that would be a red flag, surely. The, a the, big Tongan red flag. The, the, the shit we had to deal with, eh? do you sit back and laugh about it at times when you're like, fuck. How can you go and play a test match in a World Rugby World Cup like that and you still have to deal with this? Remember, 2007 is the first year of those additional payments that are framed as compensation for the international tests that don't get played when the World Cup is on. So the Tier 1 teams are getting £3 million for playing at the World Cup the Tier 2s get just a fraction of that £300,000 as an attendance fee that everyone gets. Maybe the best part of the story is that with all this chaos in the build-up, Tonga win their first two games and go extremely close to beating South Africa in pool play, beaten by the bounce of the ball just metres from the line in the final seconds against the Springboks. Going for the kick down the line. If it stays in play, it could be so dangerous, but unfortunately for... The neutrals and the Tongans. Pavili couldn't quite get on the end of it. Still, it's a Springbok line-out. No, it's not. It's the full-time whistle. Well, Tonga went down 25-30 against the eventual champion. The Tongans have exceeded all 
impossible expectation here in Lens. The South Africans have their bonus point, but so do the Tongans. They would also go on to give the English team, ultimately the other finalists that year, a hell of a fright. Now, that all sounds like some glorious underdog story, where, coincidentally, I almost won £100 by putting five down for Tonga to win. A story that might almost play out in Hollywood. But on the day-to-day, trying to move the situation forward is still a very tough gig. I wanted to know what keeps Harley going in the face of all this. Just simple things, and then when you see the... when the boys start crying on the national anthem, you know, you've been there, it's purely about their families and families in the islands and that. And for some stupid reason, I, I think of the kids, the kids in Tonga, Fiji and Samoa, that you can share a bit of hope or lights. They all can play rugby. Whether that will, will uh, for tradition with what I'm doing, but, you know, keep me going to just like, fuck. Let's just keep soldiering on with what we're doing. Hopefully, um, if it makes a difference with some decisions here that will affect a few of the kids coming up, then that'll be awesome for us. The trick is that those kids' biggest dreams often have them thinking of a black jersey first. And that keeps a lot of boys waiting, trying to work out which option works best for them and their family. All the, the, the media, everyone else, oh, fuck, why don't let's get this player to change? But they don't know that some of the players, they don't want to. We can see it like, oh shit, if I keep this open, maybe I can still go back to New Zealand and go for the All Blacks, you know? And just the possibility of playing for the All Blacks or Australia or any tier one side where maybe you don't have to keep asking when you might get paid, you can see how that makes total sense. Yeah, like I said, it's tough, eh? So when Samusori Taukeaha was named, remember when he was playing for the Chiefs, we, we, everyone didn't expect him, they're like, fuck, he won't be at All Blacks. You know, we've got all the hookers here. He was fourth or fifth rank at the time. Remember, Sami Soni, who now looks to have a great career with the All Blacks ahead of him, was born in Tonga and came out to New Zealand with a Tongan age grade team, like Hale. Then um, Tonga have already spoken to Sami Soni, and this is what he has to go through. He gets a sniff of chance and fucking outplayed all the hookers, and now he's right back in the frame. But at the times when he was named... Everyone like myself were like, fuck, this is just another one test. He'll play that test and that's him fucked for Tonga. He goes and flourishes in the environment and now he's put himself back in fucking third best hooker at the moment. But this was so tricky to, to understand the selections of players like that. Because they've got, then they've got, I mean, he might have 10 years in the All Blacks, which would be great. But even if he doesn't, his market value in the UK or France or Japan as an all-black, yep. it's pretty much double what it is. As Fuck, well. yeah. You put your ABs next to your name, double your income wherever you're going to go. So, But no, he's playing well at the moment. You know, Tonga have forgotten, they've got to move on. <laughs> so the net effect of that dream is to have not just the guys who get selected for a tier one team become ineligible for Donga or another Pacific team. It keeps quite a few of them from making themselves available because they don't want to miss out on an opportunity. And if you stay with Tonga but go overseas, and until the arrival of Moana Pacifica, you pretty much had to leave New Zealand for a full-time contract if you wanted to play for Tonga, then you're vulnerable. 
unless you really know how to stick up for yourself when it comes to the crunch with an employer. Hale was playing for a Japanese club team whose coach wanted him to stay on for pre-season training when the call came from Tonga. I just said, fuck this, I'm out. I'm going to play for Tonga. Then I remember fucking fighting with Eddie Jones and I was like, but I don't need to go play. You know this man and I know it. And Eddie goes, no, you got to be here for pre-season and fucking you know that I'm going to go to this. Later, Eddie. But it's interesting, right? So Eddie Jones, who was who previously previously coached Australia, was then coaching Japan. No, he went on to coach no. Japan. Yeah, and is now coach of England. And he was saying to you, "Dude, I need you here. Let let Tonga go." But that's what they'll try. They'll give you like shit. You know, the preseason. But it's up to the players. Well, it's a big call on the players. Now, just a note: as of January 2023. Eddie Jones is now the former coach of England and back to coaching Australia. But it's worth remembering that perhaps his most famous victory as a coach was when Japan beat South Africa at the World Cup in 2015. Yeah, they made an amazing film about that. That's right, The Brighton Miracle. Let me tell you, these guys are here to embarrass you. To embarrass your families. They want to show the world who they are. That you don't deserve to be here. That's Tim the Mus Morrison playing Eddie Jones. Yeah, and the kind of starting point for the story is Japan's humiliation at going down 145 points to 17 against the All Blacks at the Rugby World Cup in 1995. Oof, might have an echo in Donga. Now, I don't know what was going on in his head when he was talking to Harley, but for me, the real point is that one of the ways Eddie Jones pulled off that miracle in Brighton was by insisting on having all the Japanese squad together for months and months of training before the competition. But that's a luxury not everyone can afford. So just to kind of sum up the different pressures players face before playing for Tonga, you've got the lure of playing for a Tier 1 team. New Zealand, Australia and pretty much all the Six Nation teams have had Pacific people play for them now. Or even a Tier 2 team like Japan who can actually pay good money and also just the possibility of playing for them. Countries like Japan and New Zealand enforce a de facto quota system where if you're ineligible for the national side, your chances of playing in the domestic competition are slim. And then you have the kind of pressure Harley was talking about just now from Eddie Jones. Remember what Fina Inisi was saying in the last episode? Oh, they kind of small talk in the Tonga camp. Like, oh, this guy couldn't come because he didn't get released from his club, da-da-da. Yeah, it's kind of sad to see those kind of situations. We just hope that it kind of changes as we go forward, especially going into the World Cup. John, is there nothing that can be done about that? It's incredibly hard for the players themselves to speak out. Unless you're as strong-minded as Hale and your coach doesn't follow through, it could be professional suicide. So while you hear rumours, it doesn't often get seen in the open. And I guess it doesn't happen to players from Tier 1 nations because their unions wouldn't stand for it. And because they're able to pay their players, right? Guys playing for the islands often have to pay their own plane tickets. Wait, what? They have to pay for their own plane tickets? Yeah, guys are paying for their own flights to assemble with the team and then they're typically paid like... 500 bucks a week to be there, not even minimum wage in New Zealand. So you can see where the leverage is, and the clubs know that. 
They might offer you a bonus to stay or not offer you a contract if you go or dock your wages. Is there no legal mechanism for world rugby to do anything about it? Well, yeah, there is. The bit that covers it is Regulation 9 or Reg 9 around availability, and it is absolutely clear on this point. I won't read you the whole thing, but the key quote is that the future development and extension of the sport at all levels and throughout the world would be threatened if a union was not able to select and have available the players it requires. Yeah, I mean, it's like the whole point of playing any international game, let alone a World Cup, is that our best guys play your best guys, not your best guys play our best guys after the rich guys have had their pick of the people they want to hold back. And in theory, there are a range of punishments that can get very heavy. Clubs can get relegated, which is a huge deal. But when this happened to three Fijian players at racing, my old club in Paris, they got paid off to stay away from the World Cup in 2011. Dan Carter played at racing. Uh, Joe Wokothoko as well. Some big names. Yeah, some big names. And a coach there, another former All Black, Simon Mannix, openly admitted to it. But World Rugby pretty much point-blank refused to follow up and said it was on the union concerned. In this case, Fiji. And the whole thing got kicked into the long grass by the French. As far as I'm aware, no one has ever been prosecuted under that regulation. And part of the reason for that seems to be that it's so widespread as to almost be normalised? Yeah, the case I'm talking about was 10 or 11 years ago. My understanding is that things have got a bit better since then. But again, it's really hard to know. When I first heard about it, I was pretty shocked. And so were other guys I spoke with. White guys, I guess. Players and journos and officials. Although I had been playing alongside Pacifica. But as soon as I started asking the Pacific guys about it, they were all like, oh yeah, this is standard. Happens all the time. Is it a fair game? They told me that I was hopefully not playing for internationals. Here's Inoke Afiaki, the former Tongan captain. We played together for Wellington in the 90s. He's explaining how his deal went with a Welsh club in 2005. Because basically the goers in the British clubs is that you're there to replace the ones that they've got playing in their internationals and their autumns and Six Nations. So you're there to fill in their shoes. So you can't be running off and playing for Tonga. So that was a chat and just made clear that I won't be playing for Tonga. But it, it's never written down? No, no, no. It's just the gentleman's agreement that you want this contract, then you're not playing, right? So I gave them the nod that, nah, yeah, it's enough. I'm not playing for Tonga. I've got to retire. But then obviously your, your country comes knocking on the door, they turn up in the country, they don't have enough players, and they really need you to play. So, yeah, what do you do? So in fact, in this case, he does go and play. But again, Inoki is in his 30s by now. He's a big boy and able to stand up to the club, although he makes the point that his wife was pregnant at the time. In the end, he only has two seasons with that Welsh team, but it's also worth mentioning that even if they tried to stop him representing Tonga, he still had a good time with them. Kinetic Scarlets were uh, probably, I, I enjoyed them the most as a club because they're family values and they listen to you and they ask you questions whether you're okay. And all they wanted you to do was play well. So unfortunately, some guys didn't play well and they were ushered out of town with pitchforks. But that was the deal. If you play well mm. for Kinetic Scarlets, they'll love you. <laughs> mm. It's important to remember that 
while they can behave cynically and have a negative impact on the international teams, these clubs and these Northern Hemisphere competitions can also offer a great environment. Not only are players training and playing at the top end of the professional game, the money can be an absolute lifeline for guys and their families and their future. Japan's relationship with Tonga has gone back 50-odd years. And not just not just rugby and sumo wrestling, etc. So there's a long history there. And it's it's a mutual beneficial one. So despite them using our best players, the kids are looked after. They they go for university, they get degrees, they're out there in Japan making a making a good living. But a Nokia does sound a warning. I would like to see more controls on it. I, I would like to see that the agents are held accountable for the kids that they take offshore. In France, for example, you know, there's a lot of kids that go over there, but where do they end up? Um, some kids should be destined for the top, but they get held at rubbish clubs and paid very little, and they're trapped. They're, they're, it's literally a slave trade. They're getting trapped in, in this day and age. So, yeah, I would love rugby to spend more time, or rugby union to spend more time, and, and knowing how this flow works of, of kids leaving smaller places and and falling into to traps which is basically a slave trade and that, that's still real and people don't talk about it but i'm seeing my countrymen stuck in places thinking well, how the heck did you get here slave trade is a big call it is a big call but it's it's, it's, a, it, it's, <laughs> it's being trapped in a situation where you, they're not going to let you go and do what you're you what you can do elsewhere by by whether that's knowledge or, or, you know, simply leaving you in a situation where you're consistently needing the club to, to help you because you don't know any better. Now, to JD's non-Pacific ears, slave trade might sound like a big call. But the Pacific has a dark history of blackbirding, bonded contracts, and Pacific people being shipped to places they can't get out of, with Europeans treating Pacific bodies as an economic resource and nothing more. To fully understand this, we'll probably need a whole new podcast, but just bear in mind there's a real precedent for Pacifica being promised an opportunity and on arrival in a new place, finding themselves exploited in a difficult environment with no way of returning home. Enoki himself was born in Tonga. He came to New Zealand at an early age. I was only like three, I think. I can't remember my. I think th- my first memory was actually being on that plane and and looking down and seeing what looked like miniature toys that you can play with. His was a classic story of a family that came searching for a better life, although that didn't necessarily mean better weather. So we were coming down to Wellington, and just everything was new yet cold. A day like this, <laughs> um, and just got used to it. Um, Dad had played rugby in New Zealand a few times before with the Tongan team, so he, he, you know, he made it clear to us that we're staying in New Zealand and we're going to go to school in New Zealand and we're going to go to university and come out with a degree. <laughs> St Bernard's represents, that is, Enoke Mi's old high school. I also went to the same university as him and John, Victoria University, Wellington, to Hedlinga. Walker. And, you know, while he did end up with a degree, sport offered a way of integrating into his new home. What it gave me an opportunity to do, and definitely for me, I'm pretty sure I speak on a little bit on behalf of brown people, is that, but, it, but it made me a New Zealander faster. Because on, on arriving in the country, I can remember being told to piss off back to the islands, you coconut. 
even by Maori kids. <laughs> so yeah, I felt the I felt the non-love, <laughs> and and once I showed that I had rugby skill, I'm now your best buddy. So that was uh, I was getting privileged through playing a sport. So obviously, I'm going to stay with it. And by 1996, when rugby turned pro, he was in his early 20s, playing for the Hurricanes in what was then the Super 12. Yeah, I was in a that group, and I, just, I was just enjoying it. They were giving me money, and I was just thinking, oh my gosh, I'm paying my student loan off fast. And so that was another little target as well. It's interesting because I don't think people understand necessarily the, the role that money plays. Yeah, it's huge. It, especially to the island community. Yeah, it's huge because um, we're poor. You know, our, our people are poor. We came here, work hard despite everything. And that everything is a big everything because they have to overcome, you know, racism, whatever. You know, Dawn Raid's a classic example. We're back with Pakilao Manaselua again in South Auckland. With the chickens. And those that are successful, you know, are often seen as, well, see, there's nothing wrong with New Zealand. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, they were successful despite what they went through, in spite of all that stuff. Because when you play the game and you're in the game, you feel like you're a part of the game. You just got to take a little bit, a step further back and look who owns the game. You know, and it's not the people who are playing it or, or supporting the game. It's a very, very elite few. And it's a very powerful elite few. Do you know how many votes Tonga has at World Rugby? No, none. Well, exactly. Italy have three. Yeah. For me, there's something wrong in that equation, and it stems to, and I'll say it, it's racism, structural racism. The home unions know the threat, I think, of our smaller unions getting too strong, and um, they'd rather pick off our best players and get them to play for them, you know, which is fine because at, at the end of the day, it's the economic thing for our boys as well. They have to earn a crust, so they've got to go there and play, and then they're under the control of those unions. So, yeah, I think we could do a lot more, a lot more. Now, there has been some good news for Donga recently around being able to pick their best players. We'll get to that in a second. But first of all, what's the story with that voting situation at World Rugby? Because it seems nuts. Yeah, it does seem absurd. Italy effectively get three for being in the Six Nations, which is more about geography than what they contribute to the game. Remember, Samoa has a vote. Fiji have one of their own, plus one representative on the Oceania board. My understanding is that it goes back to the way the Tongan Rugby Union has been run in the past, and what we might delicately describe as financial mismanagement. World Rugby want to see that tidied up before giving Tonga a vote. I asked the Dongan Prime Minister, Siaosi Sofalini, a little bit about this when we saw him at the Pacific Nations Cup in Fiji in July. I've been um, talking with Tongan Rugby about governance, some issues in the past. I mean, we're working with World Rugby right now. Uh, we're fully supportive of, of what we're doing as partners in actually developing rugby, and especially rugby as a, another form of a development tools for our people. In fairness, we caught the PM just outside the Tongan changing room. It was pretty chaotic. The interesting thing for me was you see a lot of politicians at rugby games, right? But you wouldn't normally be asking them about how the union is being run. Basically, I just came to, uh, uh, to tell the players that uh, the people in the government of Tonga are fully behind them. And that really means something because the Tongan government is often called on to financially support Tongan rugby. And then they want some oversight. And that can get complicated. Yeah, it's really hard. I spoke with someone who didn't want to be named, but who had sat at the table at the start of the year 
looking at money and they said it's just really depressing. You've got this massive hole in the finances before you've even started. There's just never enough. Someone who knows about this firsthand is Toltai Gefu, the former Wallaby back rower and current Dongan coach. There's a lot of politics involved there in the background and we don't do ourselves any favours as well. We have some huge, over the years, some huge governance problems. So we don't help ourselves, but we are trying to get better. We're trying to find people who fit the role and want to do the right thing. And I suppose we're no, we're no different with a lot of other unions where, where they have their own challenges around their leadership um, and their governance. So while he acknowledges those issues, he does make a fair point. No organisation is perfect. Yeah, that's right. USA Rugby, the team that represents the global financial powerhouse and who have recently been awarded both the 2031 Men's Rugby World Cup and the 2033 Women's Rugby World Cup, they were in pretty dire financial straits before COVID arrived and they got bailed out by World Rugby. I think all the second-tier nations would say they have challenges of their own, but we have to remember how unique the situation is with the Pacific. Here's Harute Poli again. I've got to try to be careful as I said it loud with a bit of passion when we have this discussion. I just blare, oh, fuck. Don't compare us to America and Mm. Canada and Namibia and that. Name me Namibian players that are playing for the All Blacks, Australia... Name me how much they have input in, in all the pro club rugby in, in the world. You know, and then I sit back and feel stink about it, but sometimes it can blur it out. Yeah, we are emerging nations, but don't ever compare us to the Pacific Island to what the other emerging nations are going through. There's no comparison. But he says, for diplomatic reasons, if you're trying to get reform over the line, it's important to read the room. As you say, it's more powerful if we can have a step forward in the right direction to, to include us in the emerging nations. Because you've got to have to vote to fucking America and Canada and all that when you when you go into the table. And then you've got to make them feel like, yeah, we're in the same boat. Fuck. Let's finish with some good news, because there has been good news. Pacific nations are gearing up for a boost after World Rugby decided that players will be allowed to switch national teams from next year. Prior to the new change, once a player had... This came at the end of 2021. Up until the year 2000, players had been able to change between countries they were eligible to play for, either by birth, residency or links through parents or grandparents. So, for example, in the 1990s, Christchurch-born first five Stephen Bashup played for Samoa, then the All Blacks, then Samoa again. Yeah, but then there was a scandal in the Northern Hemisphere known as Granny Gate. Former All Black Shane Howarth was perhaps the best-known example. He played 19 tests for Wales before it emerged his granddad wasn't Welsh. So, as you say, James, there was a crackdown and the rules were changed in 2000. From then on, you had to pick one team and stick with it. But now, after a three-year stand-down period, you can switch. Here's Tongan coach Toltai Kefu again. There's been a massive rule change in eligibility status of, of players um, which have um, largely benefited us. Um, and, and that rule change has basically transformed our team um, 
we'll get some really good quality players um, on board now moving forward towards the, towards the Rugby World Cup. A number of former All Blacks, Malakai Fekitoa, Charles Piotau, Augustine Puru, along with former Wallaby Israel Falau, are now available for selection with their Kalitahi through their Tongan heritage. I've talked to a lot of players who I've got my eye on moving forward to the World Cup, and, and most of them, 99% of them, have agreed to come on board. So with these new eligibility laws, along with the rise of Moana Pacifica and the pool of players that provides, there's reason to hope Dotai Gefu won't find himself having to send out another underprepared, understrength team to face the All Blacks. To put players in that type of position is really, really unfair. And that young players, like Finer Nisi, who've always dreamed of international rugby. Excited just to be able to run out there and rub shoulders with their heroes, ABs, especially for all the young guys who have grown up watching all the All Blacks. Can take away a more positive experience. It feels like we're just kind of like leftovers, just being left out there to dry and to fend for ourselves. Yeah, but other pieces of the puzzle will need to come together as well. More meaningful competition, more time together, more resources for them to be able to play to their full potential. And we know our challenges, and they're massive challenges. But one thing I love about our group is, okay, they're the challenges. We can identify them. We understand them. We don't complain. We don't moan. We just crack on. You know, because if you stand still and worry about those things all the time, it can have a quite negative impact on your mindset and the environment. And it's really hard for a coach leading in that environment. There's a tension between accepting a situation because you just need to get on with the job and standing back and saying, actually, this isn't right. If you go back to Tonga's biggest success of recent years, in 2011... And the conversion is wide... But we have seen one of the great upsets in Rugby World Cup history. Tonga has beaten France. Even then, when they beat the French team who went on to give the All Blacks a hell of a fright in the final, going down 8-7, Tonga didn't make it through to the quarterfinals because they'd lost 25-20 against Canada after just a five-day turnaround to recover following their opening game against the All Blacks. France and New Zealand both had minimum six-day turnarounds in that pool, and a day really makes a difference at that level. So what's the logic behind that? Again, it's commercial. The argument was that the Tier 1 teams drew bigger audiences, so they had to play around a weekend. Right, but Tier 2 teams, they're just making up numbers, so they'll take what they're given? What gets me is that from the outside, that result is going to feed into this narrative Oh, the island teams, they're just so inconsistent. When really, they're trying to deal with yet another measurable disadvantage. They've had this massive game against the All Blacks, opening match of the World Cup. We're just lucky to be there, really. Kick off at 8.30, by the way, because that's better for Northern Hemisphere TV schedules, even if it's dreadful for recovery. After a night game, even if you're exhausted with the adrenaline you pump out for a massive challenge like that, you're not getting to sleep before at least one in the morning and probably much later. 
So you virtually lose a day of recovery. And look, I've never played against the All Blacks, but I imagine you're not just physically battered, you're rinsed mentally and emotionally. That's a great privilege. And your forwards in particular are just going to be bloody sore and tired, even if nobody's actually injured. Your body's counting the cost of all those collisions. No doubt little niggles have flared up, and the coach knows that, and he has to make a choice. Do you put the same guys out again on Wednesday, knowing they won't have much in the tank? Or do you play your second team? So what do they do? They swap out 10 of the first 15 who took the field against New Zealand, and inevitably you lose a little bit of an edge in terms of combinations, fluidity. I'm sure that everyone would be cool with it if the All Blacks were effectively forced to play their second-string team in a must-win game because of unfavourable scheduling. Look, it's a dangerous thing to get into in sport because the French would probably say they'd have played differently if it had been a knockout game. But you do have to wonder, if Tonga could pull off a win like that against France... Could they not have beaten Canada given the courtesy of a decent break between games? So to go back to Manasseh's point, that success against France isn't a reason for saying everything is cool with the PI teams. It's a case of winning despite what they went through rather than because of it. Yeah, and this is no disrespect to the Canadians. As a Tier 2 team, they get stuffed too. They had just a four-day turnaround after the Tonga game before they played France. But the game against Tonga is their first. Come on, though, Matt. I said we're going to finish on good news. Well, I think it's fair to say they don't have to worry about support. Well, that is true. I mean, I spoke to some Tongan fans on the final day of the Pacific Nations Cup after they'd lost three games in a row in Fiji. And even then, the Tongan fans were still pretty upbeat. Why are Tongan fans so passionate? That's the spirit of the sport, man. Yeah. We just, you know, be happy. We, have, we are proud of uh, what the boys are doing for us and uh, getting them to represent Tonga is uh, pretty good. Pretty good, very good. Tonga is renowned in rugby for having the loudest rugby fans. Why do you think that is? You know, maybe that's why our Prime Minister is here, you know. It, mm. It's just the way Tonga, I guess, rugby's in our TNA. Can you maybe uh, say for our, our listeners, Tongas had uh, you know, such a, a hard year for the Tongan people. What issues are facing the rugby team just to be out here? You're right. I mean, we have had a couple of, uh, you know, with the tsunami, volcano, the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, just have, you know, having this team playing, uh, you know, gives us something to actually focus on and gives something for the people to actually cheer upon. Uh, lifted their spirit and I think that's what Tonga needs right now. Why are Tongan rugby fans the best fans? Happy and love. <laughs> Win or lose, life has to be happy and love. Written and produced by James Nokise, Tale Anderson and John Daniel for Bird of Paradise Productions, Radio New Zealand and Pacific Media Network. Language Programme Director, Matt Tufunga. Executive Producers for RNZ, Justin Gregory, Katie Gossett and Tim Watkin. Sound Engineers, Rangi Poek, Alex Harmer and Jeremy Ansel for RNZ, Harrison Edwards at PMN. Music and Sound Design, Anonymous, Faumu Mafu Salapo. Visuals, Manatoa Productions, Anonymous, and Krista Barnaby for RNZ. Additional reporting by Lethe Mavono. 
Additional sound recorded by Rudy Bartley at WT Media in Samoa. Special thanks to Don Mann, Louis Villasoni, Langi Poiva, Cheryl Jackson, Jody Hoane, Josie Campbell, Elijah Fafio, and Ingangaro Fakafi. Thanks to Sky Sport, TVNZ, TV3, and Discovery for game audio from TV broadcasts. RNZ Commissioning, Jody Hoane, Tim Burnell. RNZ Acting Head of Content, Veronica Schmidt. RNZ Interim Chief Content Officer, Megan Whelan. <laughs>